This is Kevin Kelly. Hello, world. I'm Eric Dye. I'm Jeremy Smith. And I'm Phil Schneider. And you're listening to the 118th Church Mag Podcast. So I interviewed Kevin Kelly, who is one of the co-founders of Wired Magazine. How flippin' nervous were you to interview him? My impression of going to church and different churches is that they're not that far behind. Where they may like behind a little bit is in... Hmm. This week's podcast is brought to you by Finding Faith Inside the Big Blue Box, a Whovian's 30-day devotional. Written by our very own Phil Schneider, Phil uses Doctor Who as a backdrop for this 30-day devotional that will walk you through basic elements of your Christian faith in full Doctor Who fashion. You can purchase Finding Faith Inside the Big Blue Box on Amazon or directly from Church Mag Press at churchmag.press. That's churchmag.press. This week we hear from Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly is the founding executive editor of Wired Magazine and author of many books, including What Technology Wants, Out of Control, and his most recent title, which he talks about on this episode, The Inevitable. Learn more about Kevin Kelly at kk.org. Now, let the fun begin. Welcome to another episode of the Church Mag Podcast. We have a very special episode this week. Phil Schneider, the great, the mighty, the powerful Phil Schneider, standing at 7 feet, 11 inches tall. Not really, but seriously. He interviewed someone a few weeks ago. Phil, tell us about it, man. Set, us, set this up for us. So I interviewed um, Kevin Kelly, who is um, uh, is one of the co-founders of Wired Magazine. One of the, um, I think, I, w- I would say preeminent or at the very least, you know, um, lofty uh, internet uh, technology magazines. And uh, he no longer um, is actively involved. He, he, I think he said he's got title of um, senior maverick and he writes maybe one article a year there, but um, now he writes books and does research and and, then tries to um, extrapolate, you know, the patterns and cycles of the internet and where we'll go next. And I interviewed him at his new book called um, the inevitable and it's all about the uh, 12 technological forces that will inevitably shape our world over the next 30 years. Okay, Phil, you have to be really honest here. How flippin' nervous were you to interview him? Uh, so nervous, I believe, is the correct response. <laughs> so I, I got on there, and, I said, and, the, and the receptionist answered, and I said, um, uh, Hi, uh, this is Phil. Um, Church Mag, I've got a, a 2 o'clock interview with Mr., Mr. Kelly. And she's like, okay, one second, please. And he's like, I'm already on. And I'm like, oh, snap, he's already on the phone. <laughs> and I said, hello. And he's like, hello. I said, uh, and I, it was, I don't know. I, I, was, I wasn't sure if I caught him in a bad moment or not, but I, I, I was, I, I'm very self-conscious. So I'm like, uh, do you prefer um, uh, um, uh, Kevin or uh, how do you be addressed? Kevin or, or uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Kelly? He's like, Kevin. Well, okay then. Let's oh, get started. I just <laughs> called a power play, and then I didn't. I didn't address him as anything else. The rest of the podcast, I just kept talking to him directly. Sans, sans, you know, title. So he was really nice, though. I, I was just super nervous. That's awesome. You, you like you you exit the room from from having interviewed on your computer, and someone looks at you and says, "Were you just working out?" <laughs> well, like, you joke. But actually, I was using um, um, an empty office and. The air circulation was intermittent. Um, <laughs> a storm had. I moved there because the Wi-Fi. I cooled the room off. I had a room air conditioned like an hour ahead of time, but the internet there started dropping off. So I moved to a place where the internet was a little bit stronger, but still, I had a few moments where the. I, I'm pretty sure the 
internet was dropping. But then uh, a massive storm broke out, and I'm in an upstairs room with five windows. So you can just hear the rain and the thunder, and I'm like, this is going to cut the power. I'm going to lose power. I'm going to lose power. I'm going to lose power. And thankfully, interview, went, we got all the way through. But, man, I was nervous. Between the nervousness and the storm, you're, like, breaking out, full-on sweat in this in this hot room. Man, you, you are like, man, you're like an interview commando, man. I, I moved my entire um, setup in under 10 minutes. I was grabbing, I had, and I had a whole rig to help me stand while I interviewed because you get better audio that way and you're more focused. I moved all this stuff across the building into this new room. And I was literally, I had five minutes to spare. Now, did, it was intense. Now, did you, um, did you get to ask Kevin? It's a, that's, I see why you did him Sans title, because it's like, Kevin, like, we're best friends, right? Um, were right. you able to ask him? It's not one of those names where it's like, a, like, a, like Jonathan. You know, right. Like, oh, hello, Jonathan. Jonathan. Right. Like, what's up, Kev? I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I don't want to be too flippant. Right. He's, by the way, he's going to listen to this. He asked for a link. So. Oh, crap. Like, now I'm sweating. No, but it's cool. No. <laughs> Well, he's a very nice guy, and and um, him, he's incredibly. So smart. I'm sweating, and Jeremy's not going to say anything at all. Exactly. <laughs> so, were there any questions that you were hoping to ask that you didn't get to ask him, or were you able to ask him everything? Um, I asked him. I, I had a few questions written down, and I asked him all those. And then going through the conversation, some more popped in my head that I would like to have asked. Um, I at one point was like, I'm going to ask him if you read John Dyer's book, which you um, probably hadn't. Um, but uh, he he does not agree with John Dyer's view of technology, or at least they don't agree. They don't agree exactly, and so there's a slight area of disagreement, or perhaps it's just nuance. But um, I wanted his take on what it. was the nuance. Well, John, you know, in the idea from the garden to the city, um, John presents the idea that technology is um, we have technology because we ruined God's perfect world. Essentially, like God put us in a garden and we have cities because we've, we've ruined we've ruined the garden. Um, now, I don't know if I would agree. I don't know. Like, technology is created to solve problems. And in the garden, we would have had no problem. So perhaps we would have had creativity, but not necessarily technology. We would have had art, but not necessarily tools. Um, so Ke- Kevin's um, and here I'm calling him Kevin again. But um, his opinion is that technology is. And he said, I think he said either good, bad, or neutral. And I think I agree with that. I would just say technology is probably just inherently neutral, and we make it good or bad. But what um, what John brought out, and maybe Kevin believes this, he didn't get, get to talk about it. But uh, John talks about how like technology, even if it's used for good purposes, will inherently change us. And usually it's the... You know, I think Kevin mentions this in the book. It's the unforeseen um, consequences of using technology that can be the most negative. So the technology we use, I mean, perfectly good, nothing wrong with it, but that we, um, it's changing us in a negative way that we can't uh, see in the moment. Oh, I, I, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. The, the, the unforeseen, I mean, it's kind of like the automobile, you know, lots of forms of transportation, you know, initially this is great. This is great. And for a long time, it really was great. But as we, as we look in the past and we look at the problems we have with pollution and these kind of things, it's, 
you know, very unforeseen. When they were developing the automobile, they had they had they did not foresee that pollution would be the issue that it has become today. Oh, exactly. Jeremy, are you going to interject anything, Jeremy? I don't I don't have anything to interject. You know, Jeremy, you don't always have to say things that are important. Can't you just like make up crap like I do? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start counseling myself. But I think I think the honestly, I would love to uh, to host. A, I don't think it's a debate because I think they probably do agree. We just need to get a chance to go down that that road. But I'd love to see John Dyer and uh, and uh, Kevin Kelly talk out their views on technology and um, in a cosmological sense. But it does sound like they're very very similar. So it would be it wouldn't be it wouldn't be necessarily a debate as much as it would be like, can you guys exactly give us some uh some more insight into these nuances <laughs> yeah I, I think i think yeah i agree it would not be a debate it'd be more of a dialogue and i think it'd be a very interesting one because they're both highly intelligent gentlemen highly what did you call him earlier that what kind of maverick uh he, his title at wired i think is senior maverick wow well one day i would like to be senior maverick at tr- <laughs> when i grow guys i want to be a senior maverick <laughs> Well, I wow. think yeah, I'll say this. I, I it's interesting that I got a chance to, to interview him because I was listening to a podcast, another podcast that should not be named because we're, we're the only podcast that exists as far as we're concerned. And um, they, 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 it's not true. They mentioned they mentioned uh, his book, um, "What Technology Wants," and I'd heard great things about it. And looking at how um, technology, well, obviously it can't. It doesn't think for itself, but it has. There are tr- trends and biases within technology that almost, you know, that, that almost mimic a will of its own. And I really want to read that book next because I've heard it's great. And I was reading this book and thinking, man, this guy's really smart. And he, he's not smart. And like, I want to quote facts to you. He's smart. And I'm going to look behind the facts and, and show you the patterns that exist here, which is a deeper intelligence, in my opinion. Yeah, I really liked I really like stuff like that that's insightful and really helps you look behind the curtain, you know, see who who the wizard really is. Yep. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's that kind of book. It's like he goes through um 12 each each chapter is a technological force and they're all verbs. So you've got becoming, cognifying, um filtering, screening, remixing. They're all verbs, which I think is a great and they're all present progressive. So like they're present but they're continuing and they're getting better. Um and I love the idea that he's that that they're not nouns; they're verbs. This is a, a time of flux. Mm, interesting. And I think it's kind of a cool uh, concept. Yeah, the book was was genius through and through. All right, that's it. I'm reading this book now. Uh, I guess enough jib jabbing around here. Let's take a listen to this awesome interview. All right. Uh, do you prefer Kevin or Mr. Kelly? How do you like to be addressed? Kevin. Kevin. All right. Let's make sure. All right. Um, well, let's begin. Um, just recently read your book, and uh, it's fantastic. It's very enlightening. Um, but um, uh, this is for our podcast, and uh, a lot of our listeners may not be aware exactly of who you are. They may not be up on their internet history. So can you real quick uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself? Mm, my internet identity is probably as one of the co-founders of Wired, where I was editor for the first seven or so years uh, until it was sold to um, Condé Nast, um, where it is today. I still have a title at Wired. I'm the senior maverick there. I do a couple of um, articles. I know I do one article a a year at the most. And um, uh, I write books about the culture of technology and its meaning. Um, and my most recent book is called The Inevitable. 
and it's about the next 20 to 30 years of digital technology and it's the rough outlines of the future. Okay, so, so about the book, I, I gotta say the title, The Inevitable, when I first heard about it, it sounded kind of ominous. Um, do you think that the future should sound ominous to us at all? I think that there are aspects of the future which I recognize can seem scary, you know, total tracking of our lives, the rise of extremely smart artificial intelligence, uh, ubiquitous virtual worlds that are very, very complete in many ways. And the shift from ownership to accessing things, the overwhelming number of new goods and media and content that we'll be creating and the necessity to actually create filters to help us sort through this. The, 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 some of this can can feel a little overwhelming or even scary. And, and um, I wrote the book in some ways to offer an alternative optimistic vision of these things and to hope that people would, excuse me, would embrace them as a way of trying to steer what's inevitable. So the, it's, it's the larger scale forms and directions that are inevitable, but the particulars are not. They they are things that we have a lot of control over that, that matter a lot to us, that form the character of what we have. And um, it's only by embracing these uh, large-scale trends that we can actually learn to, to manage the specifics. And so um, I, I don't think it needs to be ominous, but I do recognize that it might sound like that. At first, yeah, I was um, I was actually very taken with the book that you don't you don't try to nail down particulars, but you do present some very interesting kind of uh, we'll call them vignettes or scenarios of what the future might like or, or look like rather. Um, I found those very comforting, and I, I particularly like the one where you go in through you go through and explain uh, the potential benefits of access versus owning. Can you spe- uh, speak a little bit to, to that uh, effect? Yeah, so so the, so the, the general shift that we're seeing uh, is arising because um, we're, we've been for decades moving away from the central um, presence of solid material, atomic, fixed, tangible, hard things, and we're moving into this world where things are softer, in, more intangible, more like bits than, than atoms. Um, where there's less like products and more like services. And that shift to the um, soft world means that things flow. And that flowing um, creates the opportunity for uh, things to be served to us on demand. And if we have things on demand, then we, in fact, um, can uh, get them anywhere we want at any time. And if that's true, then we don't need to own them. So it it makes this world where we can um, get access to things anytime, anywhere that may in many ways be more useful and beneficial to us than the duties and responsibilities of ownership. And so that shift is true not just for, at first, the digital products, but in fact for even physical things. An example of that is, of course, of Uber or Airbnb, where you um, can get something on demand, 
maybe it's not instant, maybe it's only an hour, but um, that the result is, is that we may not have to own as many things as we do now if we can have quick access to them. I don't own, um, I'm, I'm more in the technical world of things than the, uh, you know, the physical world of things myself. And so I don't own a lot of tools and I need to, to essentially, I need to have a tractor to do what I did, had to do. And I found a company nearby that rents out small and medium sized tractors. And it was, it was perfect for what I needed. And I, I looked at, uh, looked back at the book and thought that really does seem like that could be a very reasonable way to live where you have access to what you need when you need it. And, are freed up from the responsibilities of ownership later on. Yeah, well, imagine that, you probably had to go down to some tool rental place, but imagine if it just you just summoned it on your phone and it appeared, you know, an hour later, and then they took it away. That would be even better, and um, more like going going into your garage and having to tune it up and fill it with gas, and it would take you more than an hour just to do that. So. Um, I think we're, we're, we're. You're right that that's the experience of renting is is a, is a good example, but but we can improve it even more, and and that's sort of where we're going to go. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. It was a. I think that that might be. Um, you you spend a lot of time in the book um, trying to almost. I think calm fears, you know, um, to where you can kind of, it feels like when you're writing it, perhaps you could sense where people began to bristle at some of the ideas of what might be coming, uh, in the, in the, in the time ahead. And I felt like you did a really good job of slowing down and kind of calming the fears and saying, don't worry, it won't all be this way immediately and it will take time, but you'll still have these benefits. And I, I think, is that, is it important to you, you think to calm fears or is it important to you to kind of, um, just let folks know this is going to happen tomorrow? Yeah, um, I, I don't know if I was consciously trying to confer, but I do think that I was. I am very aware that I am presenting a very optimistic scenario of the future, and and that th- that's for a couple of reasons. The 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 main one is that I think people behave better uh, with an optimistic view, and in fact, um, there's much that we have accomplished in the past we collectively as humans have accomplished in the past because people have invested into things that were long term you know people built roads that in in many cases um, have lasted for generations and may have not paid off for for a very long time and so um, there are aspects uh, that we benefit from civilization scale works that that require an investment in a long time and the only way to do that really seriously is is to be optimistic you can't you can't uh, invest into a future if you don't believe it's going to be a good place to live and so when you're optimistic you're more inclined to um take take the long-term view and i think we need the long-term view now we need to think generationally we need to think beyond um in the next quarter or the, the next year or the next decade even um, and so part of what I'm trying to do with the book is to encourage that long term take to kind of look, look at these views and say hey you know like this thing about the next 30 years let's 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 build something now that you know our grandchildren will be proud of um, because um, things that we do now have have impact and so um if 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 you are serious about that, then then um, we need to imagine how this world works in a friendly way. And so, part of what my, 
a scenario is about is trying to describe a world in 30 years that people would want to live in. Maybe it doesn't happen that way, but I think it's important to have at least that scenario to start with. Um, and unfortunately, Hollywood and even science fiction authors in general have learned that a good story requires conflict and uh, a, a, a world that works is sort of boring in many ways, but boring is boring is good for, for most of life. And so um, uh, I'm trying to imagine this kind of boring world where things uh, are good and we would actually wouldn't mind living in even though they may not make a great Hollywood movie okay that, that makes a lot of sense um, let's talk a little bit about, this, about the structure of the book you've got um, 12 chapters for uh, 12 of the inevitable forces that you're talking about that'll reshape um, our society you you put them in an order but I think you said in the book that the order doesn't really matter in a sense because they're they overlap and they flow together they're very fluid which of the 12 do you think is most essential to understand yeah, so I would want to just uh, reemphasize what you were just saying, which is that not only is the order not important, but in fact the categories themselves are honestly somewhat arbitrary in the sense that these are kind of this is like a braid of streams going through, feeding each other, codependent upon each other in some ways, um, remaking and and uh, and and amplifying each other. And so um, th th I could have cut uh, through these in, in a different way than I did. But but these are the, the for me, were the handiest umbrellas to, to, um, to hang these things on. And ha having said that, I, I think one of the, the most fundamental of those trends or forces that will really have huge impact on all the other 12 um, is is uh, uh, cognifying is the cognification, which is um, an obscure word that means that I'm using it to mean to make smarter, because we don't have very many other good English words like smartifying or whatever to smart and smarten um, to to mean that. So so it's it's it means to make things smarter, to give things more intelligence and. That's going to be sort of the central assignment in certainly in the next couple of decades and maybe for, for many decades after that where we are going to um, bring that capability uh, to our society in much the same way that we brought motors and artificial energy to the world of agriculture and we made the industrial revolution where we could automate and energize everything uh, using this um, artificial power of fossil, from fossil fuels and steam power were in motors and motorization where we um, could transcend our own limits of human muscle and animal muscle um, build things like skyscrapers or superhighways or railways across a continent or, or rockets or factories or the, the, the cities. The entire thing that we see today is all made possible by artificial energy. And now we're going to um, add to that another layer um, called artificial intelligence that will like the energy we have today can be bought over the grid. You can buy as much energy as you want to make something and electrify it. And now we're going to 
buy on the cloud as much AI as you want, artificial smartness that you need, and um, purchase it on the grid um, in the same kind of a way. And that's going to have a transformation that I think is going to exceed what we did with the Industrial Revolution. It's going to have even more impact because it's, in many ways, um, even closer to our own identities. Um, and so that car that we now drive down the road that contains within it this equivalent of 250 horses, um, which we can liberate at the flick of a switch, we're going to now add 250 minds, and that's the self-driving car. So there's 250 horses, 250 minds, and it's it's going to be a, um, an, another level of development that's going to be triggered by this ubiquitous AI that will get smarter every 18 months. I like the description you had in the book of this future AI being like electricity, always there, just waiting for you to need it. Yes, it's served as a commodity. It's a utility. It's it's something that you just have to reach for and get as much as you want, and anybody will have access to it like you have access to electricity. So just as in the past, a farmer who had an idea of taking a manual pump and they're going to add electricity to it and make an electric pump out of it. Uh, now we're going to reach for AI make a smart pump out of it, and that could be done, and anybody can do that. So, so I'm suggesting that the formula for the next um, thousands of startups is, is you take X, you take something, and you add AI to it, and you could take the more unlikely the the X's the, the more powerful the transformation so like take taxis you add AI you get Uber and look how transformative that is and so um, there are going to be very we're just going to repeat that thousands of times and we're going to have this new society you know I, I was glad you said cognifying you picked that one because I had a little bet with myself and that was I thought that's the one he's going to pick is cognifying. And I was trying to describe it to a friend of mine, and I, I said, and we're, this friend of mine is about the same age, and I said, do you remember we were kids, and every product that was new and improved came out with a clock? Like it was, it's this thing, and now there's a clock in it. There's an LCD clock. And that, to me, was, you know, well, the future is here. This pen now has a clock, you know, and that was right, right, right. Every, everything should know the time. Exactly, exactly. So now we're right, looking, right, right. looking at a world where everything will know, in a sense, everything. Every utility we use will have access to the greater collection of human knowledge. Yes, right, or, or even general knowledge of beyond humans that, that you know there's stuff that the AIs will sort of know that we won't know which will be accessible but yes that that and then that is the big um, that new collective aggregation is actually one of the the new things I, I, I label it in the lab my last chapter is beginning that's the beginning of the the, the change after AI is um, the fact that we are um, we are at, we, we are making we're connecting up things at this planetary scale, and that um, not just that we have AIs, but as you said, the AIs will have access to all known everything that's known, and that that 
that that will be happening at a planetary scale as we connect not just eight billion people but eight trillion phones and laptops and servers and chips and uh, doorknobs and everything that would else that has a chip in it and so that that becomes the beginning of something entirely new for us um, that we're kind of not right now aware of it or we think that it's metaphorically happening but it's but actually will be happening in kind of a mechanical way a real way and um it's it's you know it's it's a level that we have really no experience in and it's going to be very difficult for us to even describe uh and or sometimes even appreciate um so so that is the that's the thing after AI. I, you know, I, I love, I love hearing you talk about this because I can tell you're, you're very optimistic, and I, I, I really want to be as well. And, I, and I've reading through the book uh, and talking to you about it, I, I get, I get the sense. I totally agree. This is inevitable. This is where we're going. Um, but there's other, you know, we'll say luminaries out there who are a little more trepidatious about artificial intelligence. Um, and even though now it's a dated reference, I go back to the movie The Matrix, where there's this scene and one of the uh, computer programs basically says we call it our society versus your society because at one point we started to think for you. What are your thoughts about that? How do you think we avoid that that pitfall if it is even a potential pitfall? Uh, no, I, I, I recognize and I and I agree with you know Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking and others that that this is uh, this meaning that the idea that our creations get out of our control is is a possibility i think it's a lot more re- remote possibility than than perhaps they might agree to but i would agree that it's a possibility greater than zero and therefore is something that we should have some concern for but i don't think we should have fear about it because it's it's unlikely so it's like terrorism terrorism is possible but because it's such a low probability, we shouldn't be afraid of it. Because the whole point of terrorism is to make terror, to, to make to make you afraid. That's where all the harm comes. It doesn't come from the actual damage, which is really, really minimal. So, yes, we, we need to be, I think it's a concern, but it's, it's a very improbable and unlikely concern. And um, I could go into reasons for that, but none. The point here is is that we shouldn't dismiss it, but it's very unlikely, and it's particularly unlikely in the in the time span that I'm talking about, thirty years. Um, now, having said that, there are I think closer concerns that are very that are related uh, to you know turning over cars to uh, AIs to drive or turning over more of the decision in war to kill or turning over more of the decisions in, you know, getting mortgages or other areas where we're employing AIs. And so um, there, there's a couple of issues that are challenged. I like to think of them as challenges and opportunities. And, um, they revolve around um, conveying to them our ethics and values because, in fact, any any kind of decision like ha- has an ethical framework, and in some cases, like driving, these are life and death uh, consequences. And so, there are teams and all the um, car manufacturers who are trying to to, to do this. 
uh, who are thinking about how do we put in our own um, human higher higher biases, I'll call them biases, higher priorities into this. So like if, if there's a car crash and the car has to swerve, should it swerve in a way that gives priority to the safety of the passenger over the safety of the pedestrians if it has to make a choice. And there's sort of like no real answer to that, but yet we do have to make a decision about it. And we can... Uh, we can program that into the AIs if we are clear about our own ethics in order to transfer it. But the problem is, is we're not. Our ethics are actually very shallow, very inconsistent, not deep at all. And um, we sort of realize that as soon as you try to teach an AI about it. And what's happening is that that attempt to actually transfer that will require us to sharpen and to, and to deepen our own ethics. And therefore, in the long run, we'll become better. They will teach us to be better ourselves. So that's one issue. And the other issue is that... Um, uh, the complexities of AIs mean that there are decisions that they make that we don't have access to the the process. They actually make decisions that we don't understand. And that means that they can also be prejudiced in ways that we don't even know or understand. And that makes it very difficult to sort of... Um, uh, work with, you know, guide them, correct them, whatever it is. And so um, that, that, that's, that's a challenging opportunity before us, which is, you know, how do we, how do we um, get them to, uh, to do the things that we want to do when we may not even know, have access or understand that, that process. I mean, it's not just that we, it's like inherently ununderstandable. And so, um, that's that's another challenge. So so there are th those are much closer to the issues of them taking over and killing us, but, but uh, they are they, they are nonetheless things that that, that could you know um, have huge impact on our lives. Our audience is made up largely of um, people who volunteer at churches in the area of technology, so sound and video and uh, web design, video production. What, what do you think, you know, the, the church generally lags behind um, the greater culture in terms of cultural um, uh, understanding and technological adoption. So what do you think, what would your advice be to them in order to kind of uh, stay at least with the curve, if not try to get ahead of the curve? You know, actually, it's funny because my impression of going to church and different churches is that they're not that far behind. I think maybe... Uh, you know, in terms of their use in the technology, uh, or at least to me, the ones I, I've been to, it seemed to me to often have state-of-the-art everything and be very hip in um, using the latest stuff, including, you know, even social media and, and response to a sermon or stuff. But, but, but I think where they may lag behind a little bit is in um, integrating that into their worldview, um, I, I, I think the issue of the sort of location, like, like, so like, what is technology really? What's, what, in the cosmic sense of it, where, where, where does it sit? And should it be something that we're embracing, not just in the role of the 
church building or service, but into our lives. I think that's a that, that's where the that's where the difficulty comes. It's not so much in the to me, not so much in the church service or building, but in the people's lives. So like, what what's appropriate? Um, what's appropriate for children? Um, you know, what, how how much should this reach into our lives in general? And I think that that question is is um, uh, a difficulty because of this uncertainty about where it is. Is it inherently good? Is it inherently evil? Is it inherently neutral? And um, the way where I come down on it is that it's inherently good. Uh, it's good in the same way that we might think of as nature good that you know life is good uh, more life is better I would say the same thing about technology in general um, so um, uh, and in some cases maybe there is a sense in which there's a little bit of an Amish so the Amish community is the the default for any new technology is no it's like no that's the immediate uh, response and then they're sort of they have to kind of engineer exceptions through a consensus. Um, th- that works for them, uh, and I don't know where the kind of the there may be a little bit of that in the U.S. church a little bit where there's kind of a, a, a bias, a general bias to know to something new. Um, but f- I think uh, the way I do it is the 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 the, the default is yes, and um, there's a kind of a, a yes and like yes, and the actual job that this is doing is still unknown, and we will through use steer it to the right job. So it's sort of like there are no bad babies; all babies are good, but you just don't know what they're role is in the world and, and the whole point of life is to steer them into the right the right place for them and their talent and I think it's the same way there's no bad technologies they're all born good and our job is to steer the technology into the right role in our lives and so um, my kind of advice uh, then is to think of these technologies as inherently good but you're really trying to find the right role for it and that the only way to find that role is through use through trying it you can't think about you can't you can't figure these things out by thinking that's that doesn't work you have to figure it out by use and try experiment and reiteration that's the only way that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Well, hey, thank you very much for your time. Um, I know we, we, we're about done here. Just real quick, how do you feel about, uh, do you feel a little little proud, a little vindicated? Uh, Pokemon Go, this brand yeah. new AR game, is huge, and you were talking all about it in the book. Yeah, yeah, this convergence of the two realms together. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, it, it is, I think this to me the surprising thing was this sort of uh, seemingly sudden appearance because it was being it's like it was like a sleeper a sleeper technology that was already there because I was walking around my neighborhood last night looking for the um, looking for Pokey and um, they were they were all I mean they were like they were all over on, on, on things that obviously had been had been done years before I guess it was Google Ingress was was when they set this thing up. Um, so that was sort of the fun part, um, but yeah, I, I, I definitely feel that's a signal for something 
uh, more to come now that has been kind of demonstrated that it works and people like it and uh, it does this thing where it's not just people inside uh, closed up in their bedrooms but they actually get out I think we're going to see a lot more of it and that's really really great and also it shows us the diversity of VR it's not just um I mean, it has many, many species yet to be discovered, and that's one of them. It's, that's a, it's a great, it's a great response, especially in terms of Pokemon and all the various types there are. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> Send us an email. Subscribe and search for previous episodes of the Church Mag podcast by visiting Church Mag. You'll find a link on our main menu. Go to churchm.ag. That's Church Mag. Churchm.ag. And while you're there, feel free to send us a message and subscribe to the Church Mag Podcast so you can receive an early release of the show every Friday. Until next week. The Church Mag Podcast is proudly hosted on buzzsprout.com. Oh, let me make sure my phone didn't automatically go onto it. Because sometimes, being that it's an Apple device, it's smart, which is really stupid. Oh, yep. There it did it. Let me turn that one off. Stupid smartphone. Stupid Seriously, smartphone. it's like okay. Look, yeah. Apple. I really appreciate. I really appreciate a lot of what Apple does and its stuff. But sometimes it's annoying. I don't need you to be smart. I went into the app. I picked my Wi-Fi. Don't change it. Yeah. Well, it's like every every two hours, I have to tell tell it. I do not want to update my iOS because the update has a Bluetooth error, and I use Bluetooth. Like probably five hours a day, right? And I keep telling it no. Remind me, like, there's no, there's no ignore. Just remind me later, or do it while I'm asleep, right? Do not do this at all. Yeah, you will destroy my use of the, the device. And then sometimes when I'm using Windows, I'm like, could you just work? Why do I have huh. to go tweak something? So you can't have it both ways, people. You have to choose. Okay, do you want to tweak, or do you just want it to think for you? Right. And Jeremy's sitting back going, well, my computer I built for myself. I've created my own neural net, so I am the computer. It's working beautifully, boys. 